Hello, and welcome to the Noise Careers Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm here with Eric Palmquist. Eric is an LA-based producer who's done some awesome work with Thrice, Bad Sons, Honey, Mute Math, Chan, Matt Pompier, Never Shout Never, and a ton more. Uh, we get into his creative process, and I think he has some really unique insights. Before we get started with the interview, I want to tell you about a new thing that we're doing at Noise Creators, which is our song critiques. A bunch of our producers are going to be going through a list of songs and figuring out which songs that have been submitted to us they will critique, and they're going to give you some insight on your song. So if you want to be a part of this, head on over to our blog and look for the song critiques post and enter in your info. It takes you 60 seconds, and you can be picked by one of our producers to have your song critiqued for free and learn what you can be doing better. I think it's going to be a really cool thing that we do, so please go check it out. As well, once you get done with this interview, head on over to Eric's Noise Creators profile, listen to his Spotify playlist, check out his discography and his bio, and get him to know him a little bit better. And I think this interview is pretty awesome, so check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones. And if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out. And please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? And I guess the thing that varies the most with the singer is the type of microphone that I'll use. But usually it goes between either an SM7 or I have a Flea 47, which is mm. a copy Great of... Mike. Yeah, I love it. And then from there, I usually go into a Neve 1066 and then into 1176 into an LA-2A. And I just kind of touch them both very lightly then into a, a Poltec and you usually give it some bottom or top. Very cool. Yeah. So tell me about your background in music. And I guess it starts a while back. I grew up in grade school playing different instruments, playing piano, playing cello and doing percussion. And then the junior high that I went to didn't have a music program. So I just did sports to make friends. Then in high school, my mom started taking piano lessons and she wanted to learn a bunch of Billy Joel songs that she loved. And I was like, oh, I want to play an instrument too. And so I started taking guitar lessons. And from there, it really, it really took off. And I didn't really like school very much. And I just kind of did what I needed to do to pass by. And when I was in college, after my freshman year, I was like, I just want to study music. That's all I really want to do. 
Mm. I had a ton of catch-up work to do because I, I ended up getting my degree in music composition, which was like classical art music and stuff like that. And I didn't really have the formal training background, so my summers were spent trying to catch up and learn the stuff. But for the first time, it wasn't a chore to study. I was mm. just genuinely interested in doing it. And for the first time, my grades shot up, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't an effort. It was just fascinating to me. But yeah, so in college, I mainly focused on just music theory and orchestration and things like that. And then, and I also started playing bass in a band. And that band, we ended up moving along pretty well. And after we graduated, we made some demos and we got signed pretty quickly. But we were kind of a classic story where we got signed to Warner Brothers. We wrote about 60 songs, got put on the shelf. That pretty much led to the breakup of the band. Wow. But yeah, it was, I learned a lot. I met a lot of people and that also is kind of what started me in recording music too. So how so? I loved writing and I figured the next best thing to learn after writing and loving that is how to record it and how to make that make a difference. Also, just, you know, watching, I love to watch documentaries and watching, especially Beatles documentaries and stuff like that. And it's like, you see how quickly the studio becomes an instrument. And mm. so I was like, well, I should learn how the studio works because that will affect how I write. And so I interned at a studio called Orange Whip in Santa Barbara. Mm. I slowly started learning that and cutting my teeth doing my band's demos and learning from a lot of great engineers and producers and just kind of taking it all in. And that really was my segue into the studio. And there was definitely a few years of doing band stuff and doing live live stuff. And after my band broke up, I did a few years of just touring bass player hired gun type work. But then when I was home off the road, I was getting asked to record different stuff and record my own stuff and eventually became clear that production was the road that I really wanted to pursue. Very cool. And so you have your own studio. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. It's funny. I never really intended to to own a studio. I thought owning a studio was kind of a, a passe thing and that having... All you need is a big studio to do your drums or your full band work. And then you can do things in a little space. And the technology is amazing. And the quality, you know, is in the pieces, the select pieces of, of uh, gear that anybody owns. And so, but I was up in Santa Barbara in 2008 happened. And Santa Barbara dried up pretty well. But thankfully, I was still getting work. And I was down in L.A., I was just driving down here and spending three or four nights a week on friends' couches and stuff like that. Finally, we decided to make the move down here. And so when I came down here, my number one goal was to be a part of something that was bigger than myself and to get some work in the studios because I figured that would put me in contact with a stronger caliber of musicians and artists. And so I was just applying everywhere, and I got a fantastic gig managing the Infrasonic Recording Studio. So I've been doing that for three years. And then the owners of Infrasonic, they invested their eggs into a new mastering and vinyl cutting facility. Hmm. And so they asked me if I wanted to take it over. And since I've been take over the recording studio, 
And since I've been running it for three years and knew the numbers and everything, I was able to get the loans I needed to do it and took it over. And a lot of it was just self-preservation because in LA I'd been at the studio and it had been an amazing place for me to build my reputation and I wasn't willing to let that end. So I needed to figure out how to keep it going. Very cool. That's a pretty unique story. Yeah, it's a lot of lot of the right place, right time. Yes. I think that that's <laughs> some of it for everybody, but you also you, you make your own look as well. What's something that makes the studio unique? Well, it's a pretty big space. It can fit a band very comfortably in the room and have everybody have enough space to kind of make their their stations. And also it's got enough space where I can track. I don't always do it, but some records, it's nice to track all the instruments in the room together. Mm -hmm. And it's got enough space where I can do that, but also have just natural isolation with the distance in between the instruments and uh, just get a nice, a nice room sound. I think musicians appreciate that space. The other thing is I'm kind of in this weird corner of Los Angeles mm-hmm. in El Sereno, which is on the east side. Yeah, I don't even know that part. Yeah. <laughs> I had one artist who said, oh, this is perfect. It's just far enough away from Hollywood that the A&R people won't come over. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty good. There's actually four studios. There's the A studio that I work out of, there's a B studio, another producer, Lars Stalfers, works out of, and then there's a C and D studio, which are more like small production rooms that I actually built out this last year. But other things about my studio that are unique, I'm not a big gearhead, but mm-hmm. we got this Trident ADC console a few mm-hmm. years ago from another producer in town, Dave Trumfio. Oh, yeah. Great guy. Yeah. And he did some great work on this console. He had uh, Dave Furlot, who's a really in the engineering world. He's got a company called Inward Connections, and he does amazing Mm -hmm. work. Oh, that's great stuff. Yeah. And he modded the master section of this console. So that sounded great. And then when I got it, I worked with a few different techs in town and put in a new power supply. But then I started working on the channels themselves. I was working with a tech by the name of Tom Herzer, and he had modded a bunch of these consoles back in the 80s. And so he was able to take different parts and set up kind of A-B listenings where I could listen to the different mods Hmm. and hear the differences between, you know, different capacitors or different IC chips or all sorts of different stuff. And I really got to hone in the sound of the console because... When I first got the studio, the studio was kind of based around outboard gear more than using the console for the recording Mm. pre's. And one thing that I really wanted to do was kind of unify the sound of the studio. And I feel like the last 10 years, with the accessibility of all the boutique gear and everything, a lot of recording has turned into, well, I like these preamps for this and Mm -hmm. these preamps for that. One of the things that I really loved about classic albums was just the unification of the sound and how well everything blended together. And part of that comes through using the same gear for every channel, which is what Mm -hmm. a console provides, right? 
Yes. And and so I also worked with uh, Dave at a company called Cinemag. They're a transformer company. And he also helped with changing the transformers in the preamps. And so now it's like the transformers are from this Trident A-Range console. And then the rest of everything has been kind of brought up. And I really kind of, I feel like I've got a sound here with that console. And and I don't know how to do the technical things, but I was able to work with great people that were able to present things to me where I could use my ears and kind of hone in the sound that I wanted for the studio, which was very exciting. Yeah, it's very cool. You make a great point about how a lot of these older records were all just really like one console. I mean, granted, what was nice is it was also like usually the best console of like a Trident A-Rage, a Neve, or a Helios or something for a lot of classic records. But, you know, one sound and one style preamp, maybe they had some V72s if they were really crazy back then. Right. But like, for the most part, one type of preamp would make every record. Yeah. And it really does. It just like, I spend less time mixing because things glue together Mm. in an easier way that's the biggest proof that i have that i feel like oh this Mm. was a good step interesting and so if it works in the mix then that's all i care about nice so to jump back into your musical background a bit so you said you played bass a lot toward do you play any other instruments i'll use play loosely I hack we're, at we're allowed to do that as producers. Like, yeah. If, if I do, it's more like if you could edit yourself playing it, you play it. You can play it. Yeah. I hack at piano. I hack at guitar. I hack at bass. My bass chops are totally gone now. I can get myself around to to do what I need to do and also communicate with the artists that, that I need to communicate. But also part of that, I'm really thankful for my education too and knowing, you know, and studying every instrument in the orchestra and mm. and knowing how knowing how all instruments work and and how what are their limitations and and how they go together. You don't need to play every instrument to know how to write or instruct for an instrument. Yes. That to me is even more interesting than being able to perform. I think that's a, that's a good point. Um, so, so with that related, so we have like a saying in this podcast on like one side of the spectrum is like a Steve Albini who really just gets sounds, but is not going to comment on your song structure. And then you get like a John Feldman who fully rewrites your songs when you come in. Where do you see yourself most often on that spectrum? I see myself somewhere in the middle. <laughs> and I see, I mean, I kind of try and live by moderation but my main goal as as a producer in the work that I do is to be there for the artist and serve and serve the artist that I'm working with and one of the first talks that I have with an artist is are they open to writing or do they or not and I respect both opinions you know and if an artist is not open to collaborating in a writing capacity, then that's fine. And I can work with that and help push the artist to make the best record possible. But even in that situation, I'm never as loose as Steve Albini. I'm always very hands-on and always I always aim to create a dialogue with the artist throughout making throughout recording the song or making the record of just this creative discussion of pushing and one analogy that I like to make is a writer never writes a book and turns it into the publisher and the book gets published. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it always gets edited. 
that's my job a lot of the times is to challenge and edit and refine and polish. And then if an artist, which a lot of artists are, are open to a writing collaboration, then we'll dig in and write together and brainstorm ideas and whether it's lyrics or melodies. But even if I'm not writing, you know, and I don't feel like a part's strong enough, or if I feel like something could be better or there's something waiting in the wings, I'll push the artist to go there. I don't know if that's clear. Uh, no, 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 no <laughs> but, that's, that's very cool. Yeah. So related to that, what do you see yourself bringing to records most often? Well, to continue off that point, I guess I hope that I can bring a sense of wonder and a sense of excitement about what's to come and not not just being like, oh, this is there, that's great. And and a lot of times, you know, it's not like I'm tearing apart everything, you know. There's a lot of, when an artist brings something in, a lot of it's fantastic and I think really moving. And I'm thankful that I get to work with such talented artists. But I think it's always great to be able to step back, take a look at what you as an artist has created and be able to step back and not treat it as this precious material, but look back critically and really put a critical ear to it and say, you know, can I make this better? I think that's the most exciting part of the process is, oh, this is great. How can I reach the listener in a more clear way? Or how can I reach the listener in a more impactful way or a more emotional way? I like that. So what's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? Part of the way that I work with artists is even before we get into the studio, we've usually met up quite a few times and have started the pre-production process. They've sent me demos. If a band is touring a lot and they haven't had time to, to fully suss things out in the rehearsal room, it might be easier to come at, come at it from the opposite direction of one of the best things that I think an artist can do is just play a song so much where they have kind of a stockpile of ideas. Mm. You know, almost like uh, think of a jazz artist, you know, and bringing on the term woodshedding and just like practicing so much that they're able to improv. They know the tune so well that they're able to to improv and go beyond the tune and, and take the tune in different places. And, and not that not that people need to be able to improv different things, but that they can be like, well, it could be approached this way or that way. And to have a few different options in the toolkit, you know, and a few different tools to use, I feel like always brings about a, an amazing result. Hmm. You kind of answered my next question about a smart th thing you see bands do during the recording process. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? We talk about it. <laughs> and which I think is, uh, you know, hopefully disagreements aren't something that that I'm afraid of. And I get more joy out of my job when I'm learning and when I'm being challenged. And hopefully uh, the artist gets joy out of what they do when they're challenged and having to work hard and just bringing on that creative discussion and hopefully making an atmosphere of of it's okay to question things, it's okay to disagree. And one way that I've kind of taken just from life is uh, I have a super amazing and supportive wife, and we've been married for almost nine years. One thing that we learned early on is that if we were disagreeing on something, you know, whether it's 
like decorating the house or whatever it is. If we disagree, there's probably a better answer in front of us that we just haven't gotten to yet. That's something that can easily be brought into the studio, you know, and also disagreeing about if it's about a very specific part or something, it's it's talking it through and why somebody doesn't like it or because if it's playing it because it shows somebody's chops or shows somebody's technical prowess, that's a weak reason. Mm hmm for me agreed it's it's about serving the song and so but at the same time flexing those musical muscles and showing that there's some life in the band and this wasn't just some canned performance is uh just as valid as my last comment so i feel like there's always room to and also you know little little things like that can bring the the character that makes the band the band and not mm-hmm. and not just uh, some session players or or not just some MIDI track. Yes. And so, go, I guess that goes back to moderation again. But uh, it's it's finding those those elements and talking through them. And you know, I'm not interested in putting my foot down so hard that I'm going to storm out of the studio <laughs> or anything like that. It should be a fun and it should be a challenging process. But at the end of the day it should be a a fun process that's why we all kind of got into doing music in the first place i like that so uh the next questions we have are some stuff you about how you feel about some modern production tools do amp simulators dash reamping guitars have a place in your productions i think i've like reamped stuff two or three times in the last 10 years it's not that i think they're wrong i just haven't used it very much and the stuff that i'm seeing that's coming out right now is really exciting and mm. and even going beyond reamping is like the digital preamps and digital recording tools that are coming out now there's so many more people working on digital instruments and digital recording tools than there are working on the analog tools mm-hmm. that if it's not already there then it's going to be there quickly mm-hmm I think it's a matter of what's uh, inspiring to the artist when they're when they're in the studio is what's like I I have a a two inch tape machine and I have both sixteen and twenty four track heads on it and I mm. love it but my favorite part about it is if I'm tracking a band that's all playing together mm-hmm. it brings on this sense of we have to perform and it brings on this this positive pressure where it's like all right the tapes rolling you know. I got to do this right. Mm. Because honestly, the sonic characteristics, I can do that in the box. That magical tape thing, there's so many great tape emulators and Mm -hmm. everything that I can use in Pro Tools that if I'm honest with myself, that's not the reason why I would use tape. (laughs) Gotcha. (laughs) I like that. And and so, so you know, going back to soft like amp simulators and and soft amps and things like that if it can make the workflow easier or better and be able to focus more if i'm able to get the sounds that are inspiring and cool and it can speed up workflow so that more time is spent actually working on the song than is dealing with a broken tube on an amp or something Mm-hmm. then that would be a positive. but Or, you know, there's also something very real about playing an instrument that you can stand in front of, and some artists love to be out in the room with the amp and, mm-hmm. and play that way. 
can't take that away, but probably a little long-winded, but... No, it's yeah. good, good, good. Um, how about sampled-midi programmed drums these days for in place of real drums? I use a mix. Sometimes when I get to... If I'm working with a band and I get to a mix of a song, then... And I feel like, oh, I need to beef up the snare more than the snare is actually giving me. I'm not going to hesitate to throw some samples in and, and mix it in. Or if I get if I get something that I didn't track and I feel like, oh, this kick drum's just never gonna work, I'll replace it without thinking. But and then and MIDI drums and and sample drums, I think it's also a sound too, right? Mm-hmm. And so not all songs want to have a drum kit. And mm-hmm. and I have a huge library of electronic drums that I've sampled or that I've bought or that I've gotten from friends and whatever instrument fits the bill and helps make the song express what it wants to express. How about pitch correction? I use it all the time. The listener's ear right now, I feel, is so discerning and the general listener's sense of pitch is so much more in tune than it ever has been in Western history, I would argue Mm. to say. That's a great point. And, but they don't necessarily know it. And so mm-hmm. it, it creates this situation where the average listener who's never played a musical list, uh, note in their life, but they hear something that's out of tune. And they don't say, oh, that's expressive. Like they were really going for that note. It's a little flat or whatever. They just say, I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And, and they turn to the next piece of music. And I remember hearing the story about a French horn player back like in the forties or whatever, when, and my dates are probably totally off here, but, Mm -hmm. but so recording like French horns, they're a very difficult instrument to play. Right. And Mm -hmm. they blow out all the time. And it was common back in the earlier part of last century for, you know, French horn would blow out during an orchestral performance and nobody thought twice about it. Just what happens? They, you know, you go and see the, the New York Philharmonic and a French horn blows out, no big deal. But then as records started coming out and recordings started coming out and people started hearing these pieces, you know, obviously while they were recording, they would do takes until they got a perfect take, right? And so then when a French horn would blow out, blow out in a concert, people would start complaining. As technology has gotten more precise, and it can definitely be taken too far, no doubt about that, and many times it's stuff sounds good if not better if it is not slightly slightly off the grid if something's wrong or if it takes away i feel like the rest of the take is really good and bringing the emotion that it needs to bring then mm-hmm. i'm gonna go in there and fix it i like that how about do you master your own records no i don't know there's times where i'm like well you know the tools are available maybe i should do it but i really feel like it's such a different thought process mm-hmm and when you have great mastering engineers, you know, people like Ted Jensen or Pete Lyman or John Greenham, when they're, all they do all day is work on this last 5%. Mm-hmm. And their ears are very in tune to making this last 5% work as best as it can. I feel like it's, it's the most specialized creative piece of the music industry. It's the difference between you know, going to a store and buying some clothes or going to a tailor and having something specifically made for you, right? 
Mm. And what makes that tailor good is every day they're actually it's kind of a weird analogy because I've never done that, but <laughs> <laughs> I, I was liking it as somebody who goes to tailor and somebody who's mostly a mastering engineer. So yeah, but it, there's I'm a big believer in that whole ten thousand hours mentality where it's like you're not good at something until you do it for 10,000 hours. Yes. Or you're not a professional at it. And you know, what I'm interested in is producing and writing and making the albums and that's that's where I get my joy. And so I love handing the records off, having a mastering engineer do their thing and and take it to that place where I couldn't take it myself because for me to get 10,000 hours in mastering i just don't think it's gonna happen nice how long does it usually take you to record a song and then how long do you usually take to mix a song it really differs like some sessions are just like we're gonna write and record a song and those are usually about a week like if we're starting from nothing because we generally have to go through a few ideas and so forth and so on that can be a week process a week-long process and making albums like I just at the beginning of the year I started this new thrice record Mm -hmm. we were in the studio for two months and we did 11 songs now that was that was recording and mixing but yeah it's usually multiple days and I would say that that's one of the One of the joys of having my own studio, too, is that when I agree to do a song or a record, you know, we come to an agreement on that, and then I'm in it till it's great. Mm. And I feel like it takes away that, you know, people looking at their watch like, oh, man, we only have a few hours left. It takes that away and can help people focus on the creative. But so, you know, somewhere from two days to a week, honestly, it varies Mm -hmm. a lot. And then mixing is... That's more standard, and it's generally a day a song, mm-hmm. or a song a day. I also I always go back and revise. I'm not a oh this is my first mix. This is the best. Yes, I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. My mixes get better as I take time away from them and listen to them again and refine them. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? I randomly got to go to Daniel Lanois' house. Oh wow. I didn't know him. I wouldn't say that I know him now, but I got to go mm-hmm. to his house when he was he was doing a little listening party for the Lenoise record that he did with Neil Young. Mm-hmm. And and I got to hang out with him for a bit afterwards, and he was just talking. And one thing that he said that really stuck with me was, if you don't have a sound, you don't have a record, or you don't have a piece of art. Mm. And I think that's just kind of been burned in me. And this Lenoise record that I did was very focused. It's it's only Neil Young singing and playing guitar. Sometimes it's acoustic, sometimes it's electric, but that's it. They only use certain preamps. They only use two different effects boxes. It was, mm. it was very it was a very narrow palette. I mean, that's part of the reason why I got excited about tweaking this console and making it mine. But that's also something that I go through with artists. Something that I try and do it's easy now with soft instruments and to have any instrument you want it's also easy in LA to get any instrument you want it's easy to rent anything you want it's easy to ask friends for their guitars or whatever and we're kind of in this golden age of gear like the gear right now is more accessible and better than ever whether that's 
instruments or or recording gear. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to to choose a color palette and to define a sound. I I feel like one of my goals is in the first 10, 15 seconds of any song for the listener to be like, oh, that's Bad Sons, that's Night Riots, you know, that's Thrice. Mm-hmm. I want that to be there. I feel like I feel like in my, my favorite artist, that's always there. And I feel like mm. that comes with uh, defining a palette. A good example of that might be with this band, Bad Sons, that I've been working with for years. And we're just finishing the second album. When we first started, we were trying to find the sound and everything. And Chris, the singer, he also plays guitar. He had a few songs where he had this, he was doing this kind of melodic single note work. And it just was kind of based around the chords. It wasn't like he was soloing. It was just like he was like outlining the chords with these kind of interesting riffs Mm -hmm. and everything. I was like, not many people play guitar like that. That's really cool. Mm. I was like, you should only do that. And <laughs> and he took that. I only mentioned it kind of once. And he took that and made it his own and flexed it a few ways. And then we started digging into guitar sounds that would benefit that. And we ended up on this Strat AC30 combo that was really punchy and articulate. And for both, right now I'm mixing their second record, but for both of these records... Those are the only guitars and only amps that have been used hmm. are Strats and AC30s. And I just love that. I love that it has a sound. And I, and the amount of creativity they're able to put in that box is amazing and beautiful. And so... Well, that's, pretty, that's a pretty rad story. Yeah. I've, I feel like creatively we need, we need boxes. Mm. The book I'm writing right now is all on creativity and every study on creativity when you first start thinking about it, everybody thinks it should be this infinite open thing and that that's why like home computer recording should be giving us 30 flaming lips and polyphonic sprees but really people do better when there's limits on their creativity yeah absolutely not everybody needs to have limits like jack white but like some sort of limit right. some sort of focus really helps yeah but jack white would not be jack white if he didn't put those limits on himself agreed yeah I, I think it's just a more stringent limit than I think most people go for sometimes. I mean, just talking about creativity, I feel like, and maybe going back to the mistakes that I see in the studio is people forget who they're writing for. And, and this, this idea of, you know, I I don't know about other art forms, but this idea of an independent artist free of any boundaries or free of any audience or free of anybody overseeing what they do, I feel like is a very recent concept. And like throughout history, musicians and artists, they whether they worked for the Lord of the Land or for for musicians like the church or throughout the centuries, there is always somebody footing the bill. Mm-hmm. And there is always somebody that they we're trying to please and that's an art has grown and flourished in that scenario and and somewhere i feel and correct me if i'm wrong but it's like somewhere i feel like in the last century there came this idea of well i'm free from any limitations or or masters so to speak but that can really bring about some boring art i definitely agree with, I, I think it's an interesting thing that like you know if you think of it this way like when you're an artist like a painter 
you go to critiques, you hear things. When, As you pointed out before, when you're a book author, you get an editor. When you're working with movies, you do a table read and people talk to you about what you're doing and you get a reaction. But somewhere along the way in music, it's become, fuck you, don't tell me what the fuck to do. Right. And, so, you know, so like one of the research things I read on this as I've been like doing, the, reading like all these scientific studies and researching this book is that music can be done alone a lot more than any other art form. While I think painting really is the exception to that. Right. The big difference with painting a lot of time is that it's very rare that you're like, not going to go to school for this and do some formal training or have your, the person who you're going to have in a gallery with is going to give you a ton of feedback, but somehow you can get so far along now because we don't have these gatekeepers with somebody saying, fuck you. I won't do you. You tell me. Right. Yeah. And I think the other thing that you just brought up is studying the masters that are before you. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite starting places with any artist is to have them make me a playlist of songs mm -hmm. and then with like little explanations of and a playlist like regarding this is where I want to go Th these are different things that I like about different artists so like they could have a song and say well I like the the guitar tones in the song or I like the vocal production or whatever but specific things because I feel like we as artists are able to do so much more when we know whose shoulders we stand on. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like that gives an artist freedom to not worry about using techniques or things that they've heard before. And like one of the f false arguments that's out there is like, oh, I want to make a sound that I've never heard. And it's like, well, maybe, but... <laughs> <laughs> not likely. <laughs> but what you are going to do is do something that you like, do something that you find is inspiring that you have heard and you're going to make it. And in the process of you making it, you're going to make it yours and it is going to be a new sound. And so, and it's going to, or it's going to be put in a different context, you know, and that makes it a new sound. I think it's just so important to, to hold tight those influences and, and have somewhere to go when, when you're stuck. And to be able to to be like, oh, I don't know what to do next. Well, oh, I love these songs. Mm -hmm. Let me listen to what they did. You know, yeah, it, it gives you a compass, is what I like to say. Is it's like, okay, here's, and you know, I think what's great is you talk about this uh, this playlist thing, and it shocks me how few producers do this because I think this is like almost as important as my Pro Tools rig of that. I know where you're coming from musically, and I know how to do some things that are going to make this bring it come out of you more sounding like you, but like that compass usually like being able to refer back. Like I say is like back in the day, there used to be these common placing books. And what you would do is you'd write down your favorite quotations, your favorite books so that you could always refer to and get inspired about what you should do next and what you should do when you were thinking, cause you might not necessarily remember it after all these years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, th I think that's a great point. And, uh, you know, for any of the aspiring producers listening to this, if you're not doing that playlist, I, I don't really know what you're doing. <laughs> I'm just going to be yeah. that blunt about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, one one area where that really made an impact for, for me it was uh, when I was in school a long time ago. I got to my favorite class besides just doing the composing was this form and analysis class. 
and where we took Igor Stravinsky's piece, The Rite of Spring, and we spent a whole semester tearing it up chord by chord and, you know, theme by theme and bar by bar and rhythm by rhythm and kind of just breaking it down and seeing where he repeated things and where he and how he used different motifs and et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And, and that just, you know, it was so easy to write when I was doing that because I was because I had all these fresh ideas in my head. Mm. And that's been that's been something that's been something that I've carried on and when I hear a song I like at the very least I'll listen to it and write down the form uh, especially for pop songs form is so mm. important. Totally. And what that does is it gives me a bunch of tools for different forms of songs that I know that I like. And if a song is coming along and then people are hung up on, well, what should we do for the bridge? And I can say, well, you like this song and this song and neither of those songs have a bridge. Why mm-hmm. do we need a bridge? You know, or... <laughs> nice. Oh, that's a really good point. It's so engaging to, you know, just keep an ear to the ground and, oh, if I like a song, why do I like it? And f- Yeah. And figure it out. Yeah, I, I just had a thing with uh, one artist, like, where, like, you know... They were writing all these songs that were not full band songs and everything on their list though was a full band song. I'm like, this is really weird. Like you're not writing what you like. Like, why aren't you adding drums to these songs and stuff like that? Like, do we need to rethink this? And it really is like, it's, it's, it's so important. The observations, because I think the other thing that people don't realize is like us as producers and you talking about like going in to that right to spring thing is it's like we've been engaged in decompressing these things that we can often give an objective perspective about yourself that will give you something to think about instead of just being a thing and when people talk about self-producing i think that is the one thing that they often miss like while i still think you can make good records self-produced what you do miss is somebody teaching you more that you can learn about yourself by asking the right questions yeah and the other thing that that playlist helps me do is get in tune with with what the artist is about I mean, I have some good friends and there's some producers that I really love where it's like you go to them because they have this sound and that's that's not the way I produce I really enjoy working with different styles of, uh, and different genres and because it's a, the diversity is it's what I like to listen to but it's also it keeps coming to work every day a lot of fun. It's like, it also helps me get in tune and I can, you know, on my way to work, I can listen to that playlist to kind of get in the right mindset where I can hopefully suggest things and walk in step with the artist as opposed to just trying to bowl them over or bring out some ideas that I have because mm-hmm. I was listening to something else that I like, you know? So that's a great point. So, so let's uh, actually shift gears from that and yeah. get into what you like. So what's a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect? There's something about the early police records and I think they all kind of capture it in different ways, but they have this youthful exuberance to them and the songs, they feel, they feel a bit faster than they should Mm -hmm. and, or not faster than they should. They just, they're pushed and they're Mm -hmm. amped up and they're excited and that's hard. That's hard yes. to do, and it's hard to make feel right. The songs are so good and interesting that they just come out, but any of those records, I feel like, are are fantastic in that regard. Some famous record critic said, um, the early Van Halen records and the early Police records are bands that listen to punk not playing punk music. Yeah. And 
That I think that that's the uh, the spirit in those early ones. Then on the other hand, and going mm. in the opposite direction, Tears for Fears, Songs from the Big Chair. Mm, great record. I don't have a good way to explain it, but I th- that sounds like the most expensive record made to me. <laughs> like <laughs> that, that and like those Peter Gabriel records of the same time. Yeah, yeah, they just sound so expensive, and that's such a bad way to describe it, but in all the right ways. And there's part of it that's like so 80s about it, but at the same time, it's like the melodies are so adventurous yet so hooky. Mm-hmm. And the way that they orchestrate the melodies and throughout different instruments and and uh, musical interludes that take you from one part of the record to the next, it's just, you know, you might have to bear through some heavy saxophone playing, but <laughs> yes, but it's amazing. And it's it's so well done. It's also a sign of the times where it was about making an album, you know, mm. and now it's, now it's about making singles, which is mm-hmm. fine. I, I actually have no problem with that. But each time period brings about its pluses and minuses. And, and I feel like that record really exemplifies that. Yeah, an album. Totally. Yeah. Uh, it's a crazy listen. So with that, how about five of your favorite records throughout your and how they shaped your musical growth? I'll start with, and none of these are, you know, crazy out of the box mm. records, but I guess that's what makes them. I love I love classic records, um, but mm-hmm. Thriller by Michael Jackson mm-hmm. is obviously just so happening and mm-hmm. so exciting, and the songs are amazing, and the creativity is amazing. But one of the things that I really learned from that is, so Quincy Jones produced that, mm-hmm. and I was digging through his stuff one day, and I found this record called The Dude, and it came out a year or a year and a half before Thriller. And it's fascinating, because you start you start hearing these soundscapes and hearing... It's almost like he was playing with new techniques and stuff Mm. and making this producer album. And then he was able to refine those on Thriller. Hmm. And and I was able to tell, you know, of how much of a collaboration Thriller was with Quincy Jones and Michael Jackson. On some of the new deluxe versions of Thriller, you can hear some of the demos that, that Michael Jackson was doing. And they're very close to the and product. And so it could be easy to say like, it's all Michael and you know, it is a hundred percent Michael, but it's also a hundred percent Quincy Jones too. And being able to shape and mold and have some new tools and fresh sounds in his pocket. So was the dude before the first Quincy Jones record though, that he did with him uh, off the wall? Cause wasn't off the wall before thriller. Yes. Yeah. And that one kind of had a, a similar sound. Yeah. So yeah. So this was done in between. I think. Interesting. Uh, and, we're, we're, I'm going to definitely have yeah. to lo- lo- look it up because now, now I'm very curious. Yeah. And so, but I think listening to those two combined is just fascinating. Mm. I know what I'm doing with my weekend now. <laughs> yeah. so, so what do you have uh, next for us? So I was going through a bunch of Tom Petty records and I'd have mm. to say Damn the Torpedoes is mm-hmm. my favorite Again, just for the the youthfulness of it, the energy of it, but just the song craftsmanship on that record is second to none. Mm. And that would definitely be in there. And I think uh, Voodoo by D'Angelo would Mm, be at the top of my list. It's so amazing. 
such a unique sounding record. That's a record that I just, I love so much and I don't know if I could do it, you know? Mm. (laughs) Totally. And so it's just, it's just inspiring to me and, and the grooves are so hard and so heavy and so back in the pocket. And yeah, it's just, there's nothing bad about that record. I mean, I need to say it because I've already talked about it. There's a recording of Stravinsky conducting the New York Philharmonic doing the Rite of Spring. But, oh, nice. But it's actually it's actually called the called the Columbia Philharmonic or something. There was some reason mm. why they couldn't say the New York Philharmonic on the record. Gotcha. Uh, I think I have to put that there now. I'd say the last... I haven't dug into the newest Disclosure album, but... Mm, that last one, yeah. The first one... It really took me by surprise. And yeah, it's a great record. Yeah, Settle. What took me by surprise was the first time I heard that, I was like, well, this is just like, sounds like 90s house or something. Yes. And I was like, that's not fresh. But then I heard it again, and then it started like blowing up. I was like, all right, I really got to listen to this. And, and so I listened to it, and it's like, they're everything that we've kind of been talking about, where it's like, they know who their influences are, but then they were making these new statements and writing these killer songs, and it actually made for a pretty exciting album. I think I think these guys are going to go down pretty big in the electronic world. Like, I yeah. mean, they already are, but yeah, uh, the, it was it, it, only been about four or five stadium-sized EDM bands. As much as EDM gets hyped as being the big thing, there's only been a few that could sell out stadiums in many cities and they're one of them. Yeah. And it's, I just feel like their, their creativeness, but also their refinement is Mm -hmm. like their palette. Their palette is is defined. And when one of their songs starts now, I'm like, Oh, that's disclosure, you know? And yeah, I just feel like, and the way that they're using, especially on that album settled, they were using these, kind of older sounds but using them in new ways mm-hmm. you know it's it's just as exciting as hearing vampire weekend or some rock band you know use techniques and and sounds that i don't know say like fleetwood mac used, but using them in new ways you know mm-hmm. that's a great point i mean i didn't mention any beatles albums of course but mm-hmm. you know whatever it's everybody knows that already okay so give me your three favorite producers phil ramone is probably just reading his books and his interviews or watching his interviews i resonate greatly with the way that that he approached it and the way that he serves his artists the one very real thing that i do that he he did he mentioned in some book that he always has peanut butter and jelly around in the studio. <laughs> I was like, well, I can do that. <laughs> and then just so that when people are hungry, there's always something there, you know, and something that can nourish and get people feeling creative again. Uh, nice. Yeah. But he, he really, you know, from everything I've read and seen, it, it just seemed like he was really able to make his artists feel comfortable and valued and, and bringing that comfort and bringing that value that brought them to a place where they could reach further than they've reached before because they had that confidence and they knew that they were in a safe place. I think that's, that's really interesting. 
So now I will do the stereotypical one, and I'll say George Martin. But he's the one who, you know, seeing the different Beatles documentaries and reading about him, that was the reason why I wanted to know how the studio worked, because I figured it would affect how I wrote. And he was the first to really, maybe someone will correct me on that, but he was the first to really use the studio as an instrument and to take the Beatles songs and then put them through the studio as opposed to just documenting the song. And then the one other thing that he said, I saw, you know, when he died not too long ago, there was all these quotes floating about. And there was one interview that I was watching and he was like, well, my job is to take the, as a producer, is to take the artist's art and make it speak to them while making it as commercially viable as possible. Mm. I think that's a great challenge. And I think that is my job because... You don't need to uh, to hire a producer if you don't want to make it commercially viable. You know, mm. you can do that. Anybody can do that themselves if they just want to make their art and feel artistically fulfilled. My goal and what I strive for is to make music that really resonates with the collective voice of society. And so to make something commercially viable and to make something that can really be with people and give people something to either think about or something to comfort them or something to enjoy. You know, that's my biggest goal. Nice. I Uh, like that. Then I'd say I got a bunch on here. Nigel Godrich, Brian Eno, Daniel Lanois, or all come to mind. Quincy Jones. A lot of of great people in that lineup. Yeah, but who really intrigues me is Max Martin. Mm. And... Is it though Max Martin? I thought mostly songwriting credits, whereas Dr. Luke produces the tracks these days, I thought. Am I wrong? That does happen sometimes, but Mm -hmm. that kind of feeds into what I like about him is Mm. how he develops these teams Mm. and in writing a song and how he'll bring in different programmer people that he thinks are are doing fresh work and, and how he'll bring in different, you know, he'll bring in whoever he needs and build these teams together to create a, a song. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very exciting. And yeah, it's very fresh and interesting. Yeah, and to bring fresh ideas in the door. Because making music or being in a recording studio, it can be, a, it can be seclus- uh, seclusive. And it can, you know, you're in this weird little room with the door shut, you know. And to bring in fresh ideas and to, to have different people coming in and out through the doors can really make for a much more creative experience. And just the fact of the quality or that his work has been so pervasive and so at the top for so many decades. It's just whether you like the music or not, it's hard to find somebody who is a master at their craft at the level of him, I would say. What's the record you've been listening to recently uh, that most recently that's been inspiring you? I've listened to it a bunch when it first came out, and I put it down for a bit, and now I've been listening to it again. Beck's Morning Face. Mm. It's just, I love that record, yeah. It's just so beautiful, and the arrangements are so beautiful. Yeah, it's like, I love that record. Yeah, it really it really has a, a, an amazing emotion to it. Yeah. So my last question is, what have you been working on lately that you can tell us about? Yeah. Well, like I said, this year has been... Non-stop. So January 3rd, I started the the new Thrice record, which is coming out really soon. They've already put out two singles. 
sound stuff sounds great so far. And, oh, you know, we had Riley on the podcast a few weeks ago, and he spoke very highly of what you guys did. Oh, no way. Yeah, so we did that. Uh, well, we were meeting... We were meeting for months before, but we actually started recording it on January 3rd. And and so that record, we recorded and I mixed it, and now it's going to come out soon. And I had three days off, and uh, my wife sent me to New York to visit a friend, which was <laughs> amazing and total surprise, and I can't believe she did it. And I had three days in New York, and I just kind of got re-inspired and came back and started work on the on the new Bad Sons record. And right now I'm mixing away on that record. So hopefully finish that in the next few weeks. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going. 